Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as we near the end of the year, we get an update on the Surrey Policing Transition as SPS Chief Constable Norm Lipinski joins us. And Metro Vancouver's regional government extracts over $600 from every household in the region every year with little to no accountability. It's the time we start electing a regional government. Plus, fed up, we speak to a Vancouver Island senior who's tired of being stuck on a healthcare waiting list and will soon head to Mexico and pay out of pocket for knee and hip surgery. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Wednesday, December 13th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thanks for joining us. Got lots to talk about today. Let's get to our top story and focus on the Surrey policing transition. Now, we spent a lot of time and coverage on this very important public policy issue. So much of the debate has been focused on the politics of the transition. I want to get away from that today uh, and focus on the actual issue of transitioning from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service and have a broader conversation around building a modern uh, police force. Uh, That's what this conversation is going to focus on. I want to say that from the start. There's plenty of time to discuss politics, uh, but I'll save that for our elected officials. Now, if all goes according to plan, by 2026, the only police officers on the streets of Surrey will be members of the Surrey Police Service. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Chief Constable Norm Lipinski. Norm, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome. Good to be here, Jazz. All right, lots to talk about. Uh, let's start with some of the numbers. Walk me through in regards to how many SPS members you have now, um, uh, boots on the ground, and how many officers uh, uh, you hope to hire in the next fiscal year. Yes, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So, first of all, we have about 340 police officers all in. And then we have about, uh, out of that 340, we have about 200 that are boots on the ground on the front line working with our colleagues, uh, the RCMP. Now, uh, since the decision was made and the legislation came into play, we're starting to put together an HR plan. Mm Mm-hmm of what 2024 looks like. And, of course, that is tied into the budget, which, as you know, we submitted to the city of Surrey. And we are looking to have uh, to hire 180 next year. And a lot of the questions I get is, how did you come up with 180? Well, it's modeling that we do here and looking at what is the probability of hiring? So it's obviously got to be very high. We feel very confident we can hire that many people. And then also, how many people can we train? Because uh, you may recall in my last time I was here, I talked about that before our mm-hmm. people are deployed, they do six weeks of training. Now, out of that uh, 180, there's about 40, 45 that will be brand new recruits at the J.I., and uh, about 135 to 140 experienced officers. And so we've done our planning, and we've submitted it to the province, uh, ostensibly the special advisor, and at the same time submitted the budget to the city of Surrey. So that's where we're at. Now, if you do the math, Mm -hmm. when you're talking about 339, and then you add another 180, you're talking post 500, but obviously Surrey has more police officers than that, and that takes us to 2025 and a little bit in 2026, and then we'd be looking at the completion of the project. We all want this to to end, and uh, we want it to move along in a timely fashion, so we've been in the pause mode for 2023. And now we're leaning forward to planning and executing in 2024. How much time did that pause mode cost you in months? Cost us, uh, I would say it cost uh, a good 10 months, uh, almost a year, because obviously uh, the election was in the, in the fall of last year. And uh, we still had some classes that were being deployed uh, the first couple of months because we hired them uh, quite some time before that deployment date, but it's a uh, it, it drew us back ten months. Ten months, okay. Now you had mentioned, I think you had two uh, in your early part of your comments. There are two hundred boots on the ground, three hundred and forty uh, police officers. I'm just trying to the other hundred and forty from the two hundred. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it, question. It, it, that's that's support staff. Yeah, so, no, uh, that is what uh, we call the administration. So uh, out of that that, uh, 120 that we have in administration, 
we have about 40, almost 50 people that are ready to be deployed in the sense of that they were hired quite some time ago to be deployed, but for that 10-month pause, weren't able to do that because we didn't have the mobilization, demobilization plan Mm -hmm. to move forward. So really, in the administration of the Surrey Police Service, we need about 75 people. The rest will be deployed through the early months of 2024. In those 75, uh, that is recruiting, that is uh, HR people, that is training people, etc. So that's where the extra bodies are. And that's important discussion when we're talking about the budget. And I will say one thing here about the budget Mm -hmm. is that it's all-encompassing in the envelope for the city of Surrey budget for public safety, which is to say this, that the 180 that I would want to hire, they would fill vacancies within the RCMP detachment. This is not a layering on of the budget. If I had to simplify it, Jazz, it's one in, one out. It's not that simple, but it's pretty close to that. So the 180 would go in, 180 would go out, or there's vacancies there now, so the extra cost is about 73, 75 people that I would have in the administration because obviously we're running really two administrations, the RCMP and the Surrey Police Service. So basically whenever you're hiring at this point, it's, it's clearly you're replacing somebody else from the RCMP. It's not like there's new money required. You're replacing one-to-one essentially. Yes, that is it. Okay. From here on in, as we hire – with the exception of, of the odd person here in the HR or something of that nature. But generally speaking, everybody we hire from here on in would be filling a vacancy uh, next door. And so this is where it's, it's so important for everybody to know that we need a joint HR plan. And uh, that's what we're working towards, and that's what the special advisor is working towards. So there would be agreement of, okay, which positions would be vacated in the detachment, which rank, and where in the year that vacancy would occur, and then the SPS would hire to replace that vacancy. Um, what does a day look like for a SPS officer if they're uh, out on the street working with RCMP officers as well? Who would make, let's say, an arrest? Uh, who would do the paperwork? How does that daily relationship work for uh, an officer, a frontline officer at this moment? You know, we get that, uh, those comments or questions uh, all the time. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, they interact very well on the front line because when duty calls, they go. So what happens is you have uh, the members working alongside the RCMP. A call comes in. It could be a critical incident. You have a number of cars that go there. You have a mixture of RCMP people with SPS people. And uh, the call is assigned. Generally speaking, who gets there first is, is the person that's assigned the investigation, generally speaking. Uh, the oversight, the ultimate oversight, would be the RCMP. Why? Because they are the police of jurisdiction. We've, we've discussed this in, in the last three years, and, and uh, the simplest way to do this is somebody's got to be in charge, and there's got to be one body that's in charge. So given that we are just building up, the RCMP is in charge. At some point in the next two and a half years, we will have more officers than the RCMP and with a whole bunch of other indices as far as legal instruments and other things that have to be put in place policies, we would be in charge. And essentially the situation would be reversed. But to be clear, um, they are in charge at the present time. But our people are, are taking investigations, going to calls, working with the RCMP, leading investigations, uh, etc., just like any other frontline police officer. 
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Chief Constable Norm Lipinski from the Surrey Police Service. And when you step away from all that politics, there is still a police force to put together. And that is uh, Chief Constable Lipinski's uh, responsibility. So I wanted to focus just on the policing issue and, and some HR issues as well. And now, Chief, uh, prior to the break, you had mentioned, um, you know, a 10 month to 11 month delay just because of outside forces and the politics and the conversation that goes on on this issue of the transition. I'm just curious, those officers that you had hired, um, were they in some cases forced to remain in their communities waiting for all of this to blow over until they got some direction in regards to they can now move to Surrey, they can make those personal changes that they have to make, uh, get their families all with their heads wrapped around and moving to Surrey or moving into the lower mainland. Was that part of that delay? Well, what had happened was uh, certainly we spooled up very, very quickly in just a couple of years. We we hired uh, a couple of hundred police officers, and we had no problem doing that. And then when there was the pause that was put on, there there was interest, and some of those people still came through to us and are ready to go for 2024, and that's what we focus on. Uh, some others uh, left, uh, meaning went to other agencies, left their application here, and that's fine. Uh, but as we move forward and we focus on 2024, uh, I'm really excited about getting back into the momentum of, of hiring. And uh, there's two streams there. When you're talking about the brand-new recruits for the JI, etc., cetera, uh, there's no problem there at all because there's so many young people that have applied to us from Surrey that want to stay here and be police officers. And then with experienced officers, uh, we look to hire from across Canada. We have done so, and uh, we've taken a lot from uh, Ontario, the greater Toronto area. And initially, I was a little bit perplexed why that is. But uh, at the end of the day, the cost of living is somewhat similar. So when you look at lifestyle and so forth and the ability to be on the West Coast, we have a lot of interest uh, from them as well. well. Less know than Ontario will always help, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm curious, you mentioned the issue of recruitment. Uh, here in the Lower Mainland, as you know, in Vancouver, there was a promise to hire 100 new police officers. On top of that, of course, are yearly retirements from the Vancouver Police Department, a large force added to that Delta, New Westminster, Port Moody, and many other forces. Uh, it, are, it, there must be some challenges in regards to communities fighting over uh, recruits are even worried that Surrey may be hiring members out of Vancouver or other communities because many of these officers that work in these communities live in Surrey. Um, speak to me a little bit about trying to balance that because you, you, you want recruits at the same time. You know, you don't want to be robbing the VPD or Delta and New West uh, to the point where they're going to be complaining as well. Yeah, you bet. Um, it's a complicated issue, but uh, we've worked through uh, common understanding, and that is to say 20% of the people, Jazz, that I hire are from out of province, and I focus a lot on that. Even though there's moving involved and there's time delays, of course, for people to move here. So the other 80%, 78% are from BC. We, of course, have a lot of RCMP people. At the present time, I have about 115 RCMP members with the SPS. And then we have the lower mainland agencies. And as you said, so many people live in Surrey. And so they gravitate towards uh, applying to us. However, we have a very good understanding between all the municipal chiefs. Uh, I'm not too concerned about uh, VPD because it's a large organization that, that uh, uh, hires from across Canada, etc. And uh, they've been successful in doing that. I'm a little bit concerned about the smaller agencies. And so I keep in touch with all chiefs, but specifically the smaller agencies. And what I mean by that is I'm cognizant, very cognizant, of hiring too many from any one small agency that would put them in a position of discomfort that uh, would be very difficult for them. And so in some cases, in, in, uh, prior to uh, um, this year, I've deferred 
I've deferred applications coming to Surrey Police Service from some small agencies until they can hire somebody, either an experienced officer or put somebody through the JI. So it is, it is a, a somewhat of a complicated ecosystem, but it's working and it will continue to work and especially focusing on people from uh, outside of the province. And I'll tell you the advantage of that is some of these, uh, we have 25 different agencies represented here, and they're coming in with some great, great ideas and practices from their home agencies. And, uh, you know, I look forward in the future of uh, having a drone program to body-worn cameras, uh, a new gang program. The RCMP are doing a great job now, but I want to refine it and take it up to the next level. There is a lot of knowledge and experience here from across Canada, and we actually are starting to catalog all that, and we've got some research underway. So when the time comes, we'll be pulling uh, the trigger on this and uh, going to our board and seeking concurrence to move ahead with some of these very exciting programs. I've got 30 seconds left. I have to ask you this question. Tremendous amount of politics around this uh, policing issue. Uh, do you, um, I guess regret's not the word, but would you have accepted this position knowing what you'd have to endure? Yes, I would. Uh, the reason is it suits my personality. Uh, I've got the background. I've got the uh, education, MBA, and a law degree, which I use every day. And uh, I know that I have a great team here, and we're very, very committed. Uh, we've become very resilient, and uh, we are an investment in the future for Surrey, and we're committed to the citizens of Surrey. Chief, uh, if I don't speak to you, have a Merry Christmas. Thanks for your time today. Uh, You're welcome. Best of the holidays to you, Jazz. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the show. Just a reminder, give us a call on the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you. We just spoke to Chief Constable Norm Lipinski with the Surrey Police Service. Uh, Lots to say there. It was quite um, interesting for me where you said there's been a 10-month delay in regards to just hiring people because of all the politics that's been uh, front and center when it comes to Surrey Police Service. Call me on the buzz line. We'd love to hear your thoughts in regards to this transition. Um, Looks like the police chief uh, feels he can move forward in regards to the hiring, uh, more hiring and significantly more hiring uh, for 2024. Uh, 604 331-2899 or email me jazz at cknw.com. Well, Apple is addressing a security vulnerability that has allowed iPhone thieves to take over customers' accounts, access safe passwords, steal money, and lock people out of their digital memories. Here's the Wall Street Journal explaining how the theft works. I was outside a bar in New York City. And my phone was stolen out from my hands. Within three minutes, I was locked out of my own Apple ID. And within 24 hours, I noticed that there were thousands of dollars being taken out of my bank account. People have been reaching out to me with stories like this lately. Their iPhones are stolen, and all the protections and security they thought they had didn't matter. Bank accounts emptied, credit cards opened, no more access to photos, contacts, and anything in their iCloud. Their digital lives, gone. How? It all leads back to the theft of the iPhone's passcode. It turns out that code that can unlock your phone can also help someone else unlock your entire digital life. You lose your phone, you don't think about how you can lose everything else. I'm a good Apple customer. I back everything up to iCloud, and I thought I would come back home, log in on my MacBook, and everything just would be fine. That's not what happened. Once you take over someone's Apple ID, it's game over for them. It's game over for them. Well, joining me now is Andy Brewer, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, welcome. Hi, Jazz. I guess that's what you get when you put all your apples in one basket. (laughs) There you go. Well done. Well done. Now, this uh, setting, I guess, is called the stolen device protection setting. How does this work? Yeah, so this stolen device protection is in response to this uh, to this thing that Apple has noticed that a lot of thieves are doing, and that is once they get your passcode and they get your phone, they can completely take over your Apple digital life. So with stolen device protection, what they're essentially doing is putting additional safeguards in to prevent that from happening. So to make it harder for thieves to get access to everything on your phone. So in the event that you want to change your Apple ID or your your passwords, your Apple passwords, it's going to 
uh, assess if you're at home or at work, if you're in a familiar place. If you're not in a familiar place, it's then going to ask you to do uh, facial ID. So you're going to have to unlock it with your face on top of that. And that just simple kind of tweak is going to wreak havoc on a lot of thieves who have been finding clever ways to find people's passcodes and then steal the phone. And within like three minutes, they can completely hijack someone's digital life. So how do they get the passcode? Is it just a case of watching you? Well, it's very interesting how how thieves have been, uh, you know, taking advantage of this real simple vulnerability. You have to understand, Jazz, the iPhone is the most secure smartphone on the market, hands down. But there's one simple vulnerability, and that is that passcode that everybody does with their hands to unlock their phone. So what these thieves have been doing is they go to like nightclubs, bars, pubs, and they'll look for somebody who's a little bit inebriated or, you know, well-to-do, but looks a little like they've had one too many. They'll befriend that person and say, hey, you know, let's add me on Snapchat or on Instagram. Have that person unlock their phone. That person, because they're a little bit drunk, probably doesn't realize that someone's looking over their shoulder. And then they can see what the passcode is. Later on, they will then steal that phone and then try to unlock it with that passcode. In the event that they don't know if that passcode is, they, they want to verify it, they might actually suggest to the person, hey, let me take a picture of you and your friends. They take the phone and what they'll do is they'll lock the phone so that person, when they want to see that photo, they have to unlock their phone so they verify again, oh, I got the passcode. Then they go in for the swipe. They take the phone. Within minutes before that person realizes their phone is missing, they're locked out of their entire Apple ID. That person not only has their phone now, but has access to all of the financial apps. So usually they'll wake up the next day hungover with a lost phone and then later find out that all of this money has been wiped out of their bank accounts. It's like a worst case scenario for a lot of people from a simple vulnerability of someone finding that passcode and then having access to your iPhone. So, okay, let's just say... uh uh, this has happened. Uh, someone stolen your phone. They were able to get your passcode while you know you're at the bar talking to your friends, and they managed to steal it. And they have your number. Uh, how does this uh, stolen device protection work then? So, if the person has my passcode, they're in. They're in through the main gate of this phone, which is the main passcode. How would this protection work after that? First of all, if they want to say they're not at your house or your work, so they're at their a different location. If they try to access your saved passwords, it's going to automatically with this new feature, it's going to require face ID to make sure to mm-hmm. verify that it's you. And that's because you're not at home. It knows that something something is different. You know, it's, it's not typical behavior of you to go and try to access your saved passwords. If you want to change sensitive settings like your Apple ID password, there will be a security delay now, especially if you're not home. If you're at home, not a problem. It'll know that you probably just need to change some stuff. But if you're not in a familiar location, there will be a one-hour security delay. Now, again, that delay is not required if the iPhone is at a familiar location. And it knows because typically you'll you'll log into Wi-Fi. Of course, it also has GPS. So it can tell based upon your location. And that's how this new security feature works. It's just an additional layer, Jazz. And it's the issue is for Apple is they want people, if you forgot your password, to still be able to get in your accounts. And they have what most people are familiar with two-step verification. In this case, it's the fact that you have your iPhone and you have access to your passcode. So they want to make it easy that if you do forget your password, that you can still get into your account. But with this additional layer, it's going to make sure that you're doing this at home or at a familiar location to prevent hackers or thieves from accessing your account in the event that they get your passcode. It is amazing, as you said, the Apple phone is secure, but when you look at what we have on there these days, your your banking apps, you have your Apple Pay, uh, people may have other passwords on there, and as we head to um, a cashless society, you have your credit cards on there as well, and that's, for many people, that's their wallet now. It really is yeah. amazing what we have on those phones. It's both convenient, but it's scary because like I said, it's putting all your apples in one basket. So if you lose your phone, someone gets access to your phone, they can wreak havoc on your life. You know, in the olden days, you had to do a stick up. You put a gun and you you take someone's wallet. Now this is like, not only are they getting your phone, which has a high resale value, they're getting access to all your financial apps. And if this happens to you and you get locked out of iCloud, 
all of your photos, all of those photos that you took, you know, and those have a lot of sentimental value for people. You're locked out of that as well. So, you know, it, it, it just shows that, you know, we are going to a cashless society. We're trying to move away and have everything on our phones. But that just shows you, especially if you're going to go out drinking, keep your phone in your pocket. Don't don't leave it out where somebody can look at it or get access to your passcode. But with these new protections, it just makes it harder for thieves to do that, which should prevent a lot of theft. But they're still going to try to get access to your phone. If they can't, if, you're, if you were able to block your phone, they'll still take it apart and try to sell those parts, especially if it's a newer iPhone. But this just makes it harder for thieves because they, they found this simple you know, vulnerability and they've been exploiting it for a long time. I don't leave anything in my iCloud. I just have contacts uh, so for my phone and that's it. I, any picture I keep, I put it on a hard drive and keep it at home. <laughs> I call me old fashioned. I, I just don't trust it for that reason. But, uh, yeah. it, but we're so used to that life and it's convenient and I get that. But uh, this is a pretty big security issue uh, in, in, from reports that I've seen. So this stolen device protection, people have to look at the new iOS when they download it, but it's there to protect them. Yes. Yeah, so if you go into the settings where your facial ID settings in there in, mm-hmm. in the near future, it's just in beta right now. There, so if you want to be part of the iOS 17.3 beta program, you can try it out, but it will roll out to everybody. And I highly advise this could save your digital life, this one uh, protection feature. So make sure you have facial ID, make sure you have a passcode and make sure that any kind of changes now that you're going to do will be at a familiar location, and that'll just help protect yourself. Like I said, the iPhone is one of the most secure phones out there, but it's just that simple vulnerability of knowing your passcode could wreak havoc on your life. So this should just help prevent it, and you know it makes thieves harder. It's a game of whack-a-mole with these thieves. You know they're always going to try to find a way to get in, but this just prevents a, a simple way for them to gain access to your digital life. Andy, as always, thank you for your time, and if we don't speak, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks, Jazz. Happy holidays. Welcome back to the show. Well, let's talk about uh, local government. And, you know, um, it's one of my big issues because I've always felt that whether it's a municipality, we should be focusing on basic issues that, you know, really matter in a community, whether it's, uh, you know, community centers, as Chris Gillis and I were talking about prior to the newscast, garbage pickup potholes. Government needs to get back to the basics in regards to what are the core needs of its citizens. But it also applies to accountability as well. I mean, Metro Vancouver's Regional government extracts over $600 from every household in the region every year with little to no accountability. Is it time we start electing a regional government? Well, our next guest thinks voters should be asked if they want to directly elect the members of the Metro Vancouver Board. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Daniel Fontaine, who is a city councillor in the city of New Westminster. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Jazz. Yeah, it's a kind of a good conversation to have because we spend a lot of time talking about local governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, in regards to um, this conversation, you brought this up at, at, at the New West Council level? Yeah, so I put a motion forward to New West Council. Uh, the motion was effectively, there were several parts to that motion. One was that uh, we asked the province of British Columbia through the Minister of Municipal Affairs to conduct a public consultation, get the public involved in terms of what they would like to see around the governance of Metro Vancouver. And further to that, that we prepare ourselves for 2026 uh, ballot question, effectively a referendum on all the municipal ballots coming at the 2026 election, uh, coming out of that public consultation. And then council amended my motion slightly and added one additional piece, which was really good. And that was to uh, engage the mayor's committee um, at Metro Vancouver as well and get them and encourage them to conduct an internal review around their own governance. I was quite surprised, Jazz, that um, first of all, that it got supported, and that's great that we got endorsed, but um, I don't believe there's even a governance committee at Metro Vancouver, not that I can, not, not that I'm aware of. And, you know, that organization got set up in 1967. I think when it did, we were like 900,000 people, give or take, in the metro area. We now are approaching rapidly almost 3 million people in this metro area. And the budget for Metro Vancouver, uh, if it were a government per se, is $2.6 billion. And so we've dramatically changed the size and scope of this uh, effectively unaccountable body. And my motion was really there to begin that process of trying to increase that accountability to, uh, to the taxpayers, the people who send those $600 checks to Metro Vancouver every year. Yeah, I think the city of Vancouver's budget is about 2.1, so Metro Vancouver's 
uh, budget is actually bigger than the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the core responsibilities there? Water and sewers? That's how it started, really, uh, to, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, what else, what are they doing beyond that? Or is it still that, that is still the main conversation? That, that is the main conversation. And uh, I, I will just as a, a, take a moment to just remind your listeners that in, in the area of water and sewer, these are very expensive complex projects and we look at what the water treatment plant on the north shore i think it's what is it a billion dollars or so over budget i mean there's just literally billions of dollars flowing through metro vancouver primarily in the area of water and sewer where these water lines sewer lines cross multiple jurisdictions but they also over time since 1967 the scope and scale of the activities that are being undertaken by metro vancouver have expanded and now we've got uh, regional parks that are managed by metro vancouver I know that there are housing projects, multiple housing projects that they're now um, setting up through housing division, and they continue to expand um, their scope. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that um, they're getting pretty large for an organization for which there's little accountability. And, and you know, Jazz, you and I talked about the snow summit uh, not long mm-hmm. ago and a year ago. We had some major issues around coordination and, and the, the lack of transportation on that. You know, what really precipitated and why I brought this motion forward is just the complete and utter lack of response that I had to the request for a snow summit in the lower mainland. We got, it was like crickets from Metro Vancouver. <laughs> and it got me thinking, Jazz, like if these people who are running Metro Vancouver can't even take a half a day or a day to bring experts in the room to find out what happened at that snow summit, I think it's about time that we look at the governance of Metro Vancouver and we ask the people whether or not they believe that they're getting full value and that they're getting the proper governance structure at, uh, at Metro. Should we, before uh, deciding what a regional government should look like and, and, and you know, whether there should be elected individuals on the regional uh, government, should we, shouldn't we first be really talking about amalgamation as well for the region? Uh, I'm very curious with your thinking on this because mm. we've got 21 municipalities. We've got uh, First Nations community like Tawasson First mm. Nation uh, as well. Uh, wouldn't it be better to, to say, wait a minute here, let's instead of 21 municipalities, maybe mm. we can whittle this down to four to eight potentially mm-hmm. geographically, and then look at uh, a regional government because that's part of our issue as well. I don't think the region needs 21 municipalities. Uh, should we not be thinking of that first? Well, here's my concern with that, Jazz, is that if we go down that hole, that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. I have a feeling you and I will be talking about this when we're at our care homes together because <laughs> I have a feeling that, that hopefully we get there that far. But but I mean, it's this is this whole issue of amalgamation is so weighted with politics and weighted with... Um, NIMBYism, etc. I have a feeling that if I we tied the reform of governance at Metro with a, a discussion on amalgamation, unfortunately, we'd never get to reforming the governance at Metro Vancouver. I actually think it's the other way around. I think we can re- reform the governance at Metro quicker. We can make it um, so that the, there is more accountability. And then at that point, uh, perhaps these people who are elected directly by um, the people in the Metro Vancouver area, perhaps they might have an interest in wanting to talk about amalgamation because certainly the people who are there right now won't have that interest because they're coming from the various municipalities. Um, they're elected directly within those those cities themselves. So although I, I, I don't disagree that we could have a discussion on the amalgamation, I just would want to conflate the two issues because I think one can actually get resolved quicker and the other one would complicate and delay um, that reform. Do you think those at the regional government level, the Metro Vancouver level, whether it be elected officials from the respective communities, bureaucrats, senior levels of uh, senior bureaucrats as well, who make big decisions, uh, but most people wouldn't know, even know who these people are. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a reluctance to actually go down there? They actually like this because it's cozy, it's comfortable, they know what it is, and it's worked out really well. Why do we want to go into a much messier uh, type of regional government where there will be politicking and um, mm-hmm. regional difference as well, where people will be fighting it out? I mean, my sense is that that political class, whether it be elected officials or even mm-hmm. bureaucrats, kind of like the pr- present system. It's cozy, it works, and there isn't that much accountability on some of these decisions. Well, Jazz, I can tell you, you've been in politics and I've worked in politics and now I am a politician. I can tell you that once politicians get into a system, they're the biggest champions for that system, even though they complained about it going in. So I would suspect that the very people that are now sitting around that Metro Vancouver table, many of whom are very good people. uh, In fact, they're all very good people. They're all very committed to the community. But unfortunately, they're now uh, beholden to a system for which they got in. And it's the reform and the change and the... um, 
the uh, kind of impetus to make that change will not come from the group of people around that table. That's why it was important in the motion this week that the letter be written to the Minister of Municipal Affairs, because it should be something that's driven from the provincial level. It's something that during the upcoming provincial election, I think people should be asking about as to whether or not there should be the opportunity for better accountability. But I tell you, I've talked to a lot of people in New Westminster and beyond Almost nobody knows who sits on this uh, Metro Vancouver board. They don't know how the, the money is collected for the Metro Vancouver board. They don't know where to complain about issues related to, to Metro Vancouver. It is a very large beast that does a lot of good work. I don't want to leave the, your, your listeners with the impression they don't do some good work. They do some amazing work. But the level of accountability on the, the things like the cost overruns and the, uh, the other expenses that are there is just simply not there. And I think that, that a reform of the governance given we're in 20, almost in 2024, the time has come for that. And I'm hoping the province will, will listen to the, uh, the council's motion last night. Daniel, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, as I said, golf is often called the gentleman's game, but it's anything but these days. It's actually quite interesting watching the battle um, in front of the camera, even behind the camera when it comes to the PGA, the league or the organization that uh, runs professional golf or always has. Uh, they've had an ongoing war between the Saudi Arabia-backed Live Golf. Well, recently we heard that John Rahm uh, is, has said that he is joining the Saudi-funded Live Golf League. Uh, and many thought, well, there must be a lot of dollars thrown in. Uh, Mr. Rahm hasn't uh, been sharing details, but various reports put um, his involvement in the neighborhood of $500 million, which includes equity in one of the teams. Now, consider the entire prize fund on the PGA Tour in 2023 was about $460 million. What's interesting uh, at the same time is, as Mr. Rahm has signed with Live Golf, is Live Golf uh, is in negotiations potentially with the PGA tour to invest in the PGA. So lots going on behind the scenes in the golfing world. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, all of um, what's been going on is Rob Fay. He's the weekend morning uh, host at CKNW here and a longtime sportscaster. Rob, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Jazz. There is a lot to do in the last couple of weeks before the calendar flips. Yeah, I didn't expect sporting news uh, in December. It caught my eye when I was looking at uh, the story in the Wall Street Journal. What's your take on all of this, this PGA versus Live Golf? Well, considering Live, which was founded in 2021, has made the headway that they have. I'm actually really surprised that the fans are starting to embrace it. I thought there'd be a bigger backlash from PGA Tour and golf fans around the world, but uh, Liv's got a really interesting format. They play music at their events. It's only 54 holes. And now that they've got names like, uh, in addition to John Rahm, they've got Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kopka, Sergio and Phil, of course, in the older guard. They were very strategic, strategic and smart as to who they went out and plucked from the PGA Tour. And I think they've got a lot of negotiating power and a lot of headwind heading into the new year. Why do the Saudis want to be involved in golf? Well, that's the million-dollar question, or the billion-dollar question, isn't it? You know, it's an interesting moral compass when you think about it for the simple fact that, you know, the CEO of Live is Greg Norman, mm-hmm. you know, the, the shark, if you will. But public investment fund is essentially Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud, who's the crown prince and the PM, the prime minister, pardon me, of Saudi Arabia. Um, you have that moral compass that has a lot of people wondering if they should follow it, if they should support it, because you got to think of MBS's track record when it comes to human rights and women's rights and how he's handled journalists over the year. But I think the reason they've made headway is they are uh, they're kind of the blue collar golf option. They're they're fun. They're lively. They hit the ball 400 yards. And and when you can hear of a golfer going away for five years and making 500 million, it's tough to knock them. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of this is a commentary um, on the PGA uh, that hasn't, uh, some would say, modernized, but at the same time, others would argue, look, it is protecting the core, uh, you know, the, the core of golf uh, to make sure modern, sometimes trendy things, trendy uh, things don't impact this golf the, that is a, a traditional sport and you want to stay true to its heritage. Uh, is this a commentary on the PGA at the end of the day? It's been just too stuffy and not moving fast enough with the times? Yep. 
I think you've nailed it. I mean, you think about it in all sports. I mean, if I was to localize that and say hockey, think of what the NHL has evolved into over the last 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, the game is younger, faster. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have the rock'em, sock'em appeal to it that maybe an older generation embraced. So you think of golf, it was a little starchy. And the other thing that I'll say is it hung a lot of its hat on the uh, the fates of Tiger Woods and maybe just a handful of golfers. Well, you think of the other golfers that are now coming into that role. There's nobody that can release, replace Tiger. So as Tiger exits stage left, Liv comes into the conversation, younger, fresher, hipper, all this money to throw around. And I don't think the the PGA Tour was ready for this, which is part of the reason that they didn't want to call it a merger. If you remember back in June when this first, quote unquote, came together, that they were actually going to do something, the PGA did not want to call it a merger And part of that is, Jazz, because the PGA Tour wanted to remain tax-exempt. So they left the PGA Tour incorporated as this tax-exempt entity and only put certain assets into this conversation where they can be for-profit. But the uh, PGA did not want to lose their tax status. Um, Some have referred to this. I know the Saudis have spent money on Premier League soccer uh, and, you know, you know, even drafted older players uh, from uh, European leagues to play in the Saudi league, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo uh, being the obvious one and, you know, a significant amount of dollars offered. And people have referred to this as sports washing and you brought the issue of MBS, Mohammed, Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia who uh, has been, you know, obviously been the person behind uh, the death of one journalist having to be very blunt butchered uh, and certainly has gone after dissidents and those uh, fighting uh, for human rights in Saudi Saudi Arabia is is this ultimately good? Because many have argued whether it's soccer, whether it's um, uh, in this case golf. Uh, I understand they're poking around even for NBA basketball franchises as well. I mean, is this good for Western sports leagues uh, to be sort of the the conduit for sports washing or cleaning the reputations of a an autocratic, some would say, despotic regime? Well, he beat me to it. I, the first thing I was going to say is sports washing is what's been put forward. And the Crown Prince Mohammed, who said, I don't care what anybody thinks. He actually said that to Fox Sports not long ago. And the reality is, is I think that's exactly what it is. Saudi Arabia has got money to burn. So much money. Uh, when it comes to Western sports, that it's hard to say no. I mean, there was even rumors of LeBron maybe spending a season or two overseas. But at the end of the day, I think right now it's 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 a great opportunity for Western sports here in North America to kind of recalibrate because they're not going to win that bidding war with with Saudi Arabia. There's just way too much money to spend over there. So what do they do to better the game so that they can keep their athletes here? I mean, I look at baseball right now offering Shohei Otani $700 million isn't the direction I would go with with Major League Baseball. But Jazz, if I'm thinking of ways to say, okay, this was the wake-up call that we needed. For example, the PGA Tour, this is a great opportunity to step forward. They've still got to sign on the dotted line by December the 31st. If they do, then we'll see what happens. But if they don't, this was a great two-year window to kind of say, okay, it's time to get going. Uh, Ultimately, when it comes to golf, uh, for purists, perhaps for those who talk about golf's heritage and tradition, can golf survive the Saudis? I think so. Again, I think that the older generation, like I'm turning 50 this year, I'll forever think of the PGA Tour and the European Tour, for that matter, as the two major players on the planet. But this younger generation, which is something that I think Liv is trying to cultivate, the way that they build these these three-day rounds is, you know what, screw the 50-year-olds, screw the 60-year-olds. We want the 15 and 20 and 25-year-olds because that's the next generation. So this is where the PGA, just to circle back on this, mm-hmm. is going to really have to pull up their socks and try to get young because at the end of the day, Tiger's nearly 50 as well. They need the savior. And unfortunately, one of their saviors just hopped the water and took $500 million to do it. John Robb is number three player in the world. So that's a big get. It, it is. I mean, like I said, the pr- total prize fund for the PGA Tour in 2023 was $460 million. And one player is reported to be getting $500 million, half a billion dollars. <laughs> it is. How do you compete with that? You just don't. You don't. You don't. <laughs> Rob, my friend, thank you for your time. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Well, Bruce Gordon is like any senior. He's supposed to be enjoying his retirement years, but he can't thanks to our health care system. Bruce has been waiting for hip surgery since 2018. He also needs knee surgery as well. He's on the provincial wait list. Weeks 
have now turned into years. Fed up, he decided to do something about it. Having watched a news program focusing on medical tourism, the Port Alberni resident decided he'll pay out of pocket and go to Mexico for his surgeries in 2024. He joins us now to talk about his decision as he gets ready for his first surgery in a few weeks in Puerto Vallarta. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to uh, express my opinions on uh, what's going on in our medical system here in, in the province and across Canada. Well, you can always uh, uh, talk to ministers uh, and, and experts, but uh, I always believe personal experience uh, really highlights um, some of the challenges uh, that people go through with our system. Now, to confirm, you're leaving for Puerto Vallarta uh, in the new year, early new year, to, to have um, a hip surgery? Yes, I am. Uh, I decided about six months ago to research medical tourism after seeing something on a news broadcast uh, and how people are waiting for uh, uh, orthopedic surgeries, about 90,000 alone in this province. That, that number has not come down. It's actually built back up again, and it could be even over that at this point. But um, uh, I decided uh, to, to check into this and researched it uh, thoroughly, and Puerto Vallarta has a thriving medical tourism industry, and it's closer to Vancouver. Uh, so I, I contacted the agency who sets up these surgeries and, uh, and began the process. So there's about 10 countries, uh, 10 places around the world, some in Europe, uh, but the number one place for surgeries, believe it or not, is, is India. Mm-hmm. But it's way too far for me to travel. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad because uh, you've invited me to, to chat about this because our government has failed miserably to expedite these surgeries uh, and, uh, w- with long overdue waits and, of course, mental illness has never been factored into the equation uh, for those waiting extraordinary amounts of time that are suffering from severe pain, so, uh, which elevates, you know, anxiety. Mm-hmm. So let's touch on some of the things that you've just raised here. First of all, um, uh, you're paying out of pocket to fly to Mexico and pay for this surgery? Yes, I am. Uh, do you feel comfortable uh, I, sharing I, I, what you'll be paying? Um, yeah, I don't mind sharing that. Roughly, you don't have to be uh, specific, but roughly, what do you, what, 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 what well, is the pocket? Let me, let me, if I were to do it here in Canada, it would be between forty and $50,000. And if I went to the United States, that would be an American fund. So that's definitely out of the question. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at to have this surgery with, uh, at this clinic, uh, this hospital actually, uh, in Puerto Vallarta, uh, we're looking at just the, uh, and that includes your time in the, um, in the hospital in a private room. Mm-hmm. You're looking at around uh, $18,000. But then there's also uh, physiotherapy that has to be factored in. And, of course, uh, living in a condominium that we had to rent, uh, those expenses as well. But when you factor in, it's still well below what I would pay to do that somewhere else. How long will you be down in Mexico with with the surgery and recovery? Well, I decided that um, I wanted to stay there for uh, two months. So when I came back, uh, I would still probably do physiotherapy if I felt I needed it. But, you know, I didn't want... We live uh, on Vancouver Island and in the Alberni Valley, uh, and um, it's not really conducive for uh, convalescence and going for, um, you know, physiotherapy and all the rest of the stuff. So we decided to stay there for two months to re- to do this. Now, I, I have two surgeries mm-hmm. that I'm going for. So I'm having this done first, the knee done first, and then back in uh, and back, uh, and then let's go forward to November of 2024, I will go back to have my hip done uh, because I waited two and a half years to wait for my right hip to be done, which uh, basically 
uh, fed my uh, depression and anxiety issues, which I take medication for. And uh, uh, by the time I was finished through that episode, mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't work anymore, so I had to leave work. Uh, so now here we are, uh, moved to uh, Port Alberni on, uh, on Vancouver Island, <clears throat> and uh, taking the bull by the horns and bypassing our medical system because it's absolutely ridiculous what's going on, and they're profiling things right all the time on the news, and it's not getting s sunk into uh, the people uh, in the government. And it's not just the NDP government it's, this has been going on for 30 years, mm -hmm. and, it, and uh, so all the governments have a share in, in this. But the patient, um, maybe not everybody is going to suffer from uh, depression, anxiety disorders, but the fact is, is that, um, uh, you know, people that are waiting, uh, that do suffer from this, it basically exacerbates their uh, their condition, and uh, it's not very good. It's not good for their mental health and not good for physical health because we spend a lot of time, uh, those that are waiting for these surgeries, blocking pain. That takes a lot of energy to block pain. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the first time around, they put me on hydromorphone, and, of course, I went through the classic uh, withdrawal symptoms, uh, which I had to deal with. And if it weren't for a, a urologist that I had who had seen me um, in February of 2016 and then in May of 2016, he saw me and sat me down and says, you know, Bruce, I'm going to write your GP and your surgeon and let them know that your condition has rapidly deteriorated and you need intervention now. It never happened. <laughs> so, and even when I spoke to the surgeon that November, he told me I might have to wait six more months. And to me, that's an eternity. And as uh, a little piece of you dies each day you're waiting mm -hmm. uh, for something like this. So what can I tell you? It's, it's been a struggle, but I see uh, the path of wellness ahead of me, and I want my life back. I don't want to wait any longer. I, I, I could not go back to work. <clears throat> I was working uh, in the cruise industry as an entertainer on cruise ships. I was uh, doing the Great American Songbook, jazz, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I did a tribute to Frank Sinatra, although I do not do an impression of him. But I did what I call a singing lecture uh, and talked about him and uh, tidbits about things in his life and, and, and performed some of the tunes that people would like to hear from his repertoire of music. Bruce, so it's quite successful at it. And Bruce, I want to clarify this. You're getting hip surgery later next year, in November of 2024, I believe you said. And the knee surgery yes. is first? Knee surgery is first because I've been waiting since 2018 for this. And I slipped through their um, system, the medical system. And when they wanted me to go in to have my... Uh, hip done, we were in two waves, and uh, wave one and wave two. And of course, I didn't get a uh, uh, um, a vaccination shot until July of, uh, or no, August of 2021. And I refused to go into the hospital simply because if something happened to me and I died, my wife would be alone. So I made the decision, this is not wise, a decision to make. And even though they said, well, there's no COVID in the hospital, I said, but you can't guarantee there isn't going to be. Mm. So that elevated my, uh, my anxiety. Uh, anxiety doesn't define you as a person. Uh, you are more than just a mental state. I want to make that clear. And I'm sure that people that are listening right now need to hear that. Anxiety is something that you can deal with. It's not who you are. It may seem like you've dealt with anxiety for so long that you can't remember what it's like not to have it. Uh, and your anxiety may not affect your mind, but 
all not only affect your mind, but it'll, it'll, it could affect your body as well. And by people telling you, well, just get over it, uh, is not the answer to this. Bruce, I'm very curious. Uh, one of the, I'm just curious. Go ahead. Um, was there one moment where you just said, I'm done with the public health care system. I'm going to start researching other places and if I have to pay out of my pocket. Like, What was that one trigger point? That What day? Can you, do you recall that moment where you said... Absolutely. The moment I, I, I saw... Um, you know, talk about being in the right place at the right time. I saw a broadcast on, on a Sunday morning. Uh, Ian Hanomancing had uh, Dr. Daniel Day on and another uh, doctor talking about um, him's fight to get... Uh, uh, private medicine going and all the rest of that stuff. And they profiled a woman uh, that had been waiting for three years that said that every day that she was waiting, a piece of her, a little piece of her died. And I, 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 I started tearing up because I knew exactly what she was feeling like. She felt abandoned by the provincial... Um, uh, waiting lists, and that's what I feel. An abandonment is a real thing, and of course, you feel like you're just a number. So yes, from that day on, I said, okay, I turned to my wife, because she heard this as well, and I said, okay, let's explore going away to have this done, because a lot of people I know go to Mexico to have dentistry done, because dentistry is very expensive here, and there's millions of people that don't even, don't even have a dentist. So we have issues with that, even though the federal government is trying to expedite something there. I don't trust any of these people anymore. They talk, but uh, uh, I just find that there's a BS <laughs> quotient in what they're saying. Uh, it's politics. I, I want people to snap at it. So I found um, places that were, uh, you know, potential places to, to go to. And then a friend of mine who's a musician as well, who lives in uh, Puerto Vallarta, has friends that had used this agency. And, uh, and so I contacted the agency and put the uh, into, into works. And believe it or not, Mm-hmm. They're charging me in Mexican pesos. So <clears throat> some clinics will charge you in American dollars. Well, that adds about 35 more percent on top of it could, if you if figure in the exchange and stuff like that. Mm. So I can pay in, 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 uh, in um, Mexican pesos, and I, I can put it on my charge card. <laughs> Did you ever? Did you ever think you'd be? Part. Do you ever think you'd be paying uh, for a healthcare procedure on a credit card? Absolutely not. Yeah. This has taken me by surprise, and I, I nobody is immune from this. Uh, I'm a baby boomer, and I see that uh, uh, suicide rates among baby boomers have gone up, and of course, medical assisted death. Uh, has, is now becoming popular because people are fed up with what is going on with their with our governments. That not just the provincial government, but also uh, the federal government. Government, and it's time for Adrian Dix to step down because he sidetracks the questions mm-hmm. that the press asks and offers solutions that don't work, and he has. To me, he has a this-will-do attitude. Bruce, what would you look s- what's going on with cancer patients going to, to Bellingham. They can't even get that uh, happening properly. Bruce, what would you say to the argument that, look, we have more people moving here than ever before. We have an aging population. COVID has made it, you know, had a huge impact on our healthcare system. That those three things, that constant moving of more people moving here, needing health care, an aging population, and the you know, ravages of COVID on our healthcare system is exacerbating this problem with an already challenged healthcare system. Do you have any patience for that type of argument? Oh, you know, I have 
reams of things I could tell you about that. It, this is a multi-layered problem. This has tentacles like, a, like an octopus that reach out in different directions that are affecting society. Just recently, a report came out saying that eating disorder hospitalizations uh, uh, from 2002 to 2019, between the ages of 5 to 17 in Ontario, had an overall crease of 139%, uh, and males in the same period, 416% uh, uh, increase. So it's affecting our youth as well, what's going on, and COVID didn't help, did it? Uh, people felt isolated and a lot of other things. And, of course, I couldn't see my mother for 18 months, and she had very bad dementia. And uh, looking at her through a window doesn't, she needed to, me to touch her, mm -hmm. and I couldn't do that. So that I found very frustrating as well. And yes, uh, all these people coming into the country, uh, we need to step back from that at the moment, and we need to concentrate on, on things that are going uh, here, here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Just look at what's going on in the United States. It's pure insanity down there. They have a person running for president of the United States who is a mental case. I mean, I'm on medication. This guy, <laughs> this Bruce, guy should be strapped to a chair. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Bruce, uh, getting back to um, this trip itself, um, it, what would you like to see done in regards to our public health care system? Clearly, like most Canadians, you're very supportive of the system. Are you willing to pay more? Like, I mean, what, what would you want to change beyond whether it's this politician or that politician? Like, What would you see done? Because some would argue Canadians don't want to pay any more taxes, even though it's a system that many have argued. It's rationed health care. It's always running where it's running at 90 95% capacity. Anytime we have an extra need for health care coverage, whether it be an aging population, a growing population, the system has difficulty uh, responding to it. What would you like to see done? What do you think needs to be done? Is it a question of just more dollars, hiring more people, or do you think there should well, look, be other you know, solutions? Well, definitely hiring more people, but let's put it this way. 42 cents of our tax dollars goes into the health care system, and I don't think I'm getting my bang for my buck and to tell you the truth, if I could sue the government over this, I would ask them for my money back, and they should give me money to go down there and have the operation done, uh, simply because they can't do it themselves. I'm still waiting to get in to see a specialist because I switched doctors. Uh, the one in, in, in Duncan, which I, I won't get into that right mm -hmm. now, but... The fact of the matter is, is that uh, I wanted to be um, closer to uh, home, and Nanaimo was the best place, and I've been waiting a year and a half. I haven't heard from anybody. Then they're going to tell me it's going to be another year. You know, you know what, Jazz? Mm. They're dangling uh, our mortality in front of our eyes, and nobody likes that. Nobody likes to know that, that if they don't get this done, they're going to die, and that's big stimulus right there for me to make the decision to have this done. And I haven't gone on, um, uh, uh, what is it, um, where they, you go on the site where you can donate to, uh, to different people uh, uh, that have different causes that they send money to. I'm not doing that. I'm taking it out of my pocket, but I'm making a sacrifice and I don't think I sh should need to make a sacrifice. If they can't provide me with the, with the health care, then I'm damn well going to go down and get the operation. But I could send them the bill for it, but they're going to throw it in the garbage. I'd like to hear what... Uh, I'd like to wish Adrian Dix was there right now for me to say, well, Mr. Dix, why don't you pay for my operation? I have two of them. I waited long enough, sir. What, what are you planning to do about this? Mm -hmm. But they sidetrack all this stuff. They come up with stuff that you can see it and uh, you can hear it. You can feel it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not over uh, still yet uh, COVID and all the rest of this stuff, which is going to be a problem. We got RSV now, the respiratory virus. I mean, it's one thing after the next. Mm 
I need to be in good enough shape to endure these problems. Do you see? Because I'm I'm 70 years old, but <laughs> the way I feel right now, a 90 year old is in better shape than I am. So well, you know, Bruce, I, tell you? I really appreciate you making time for us today uh, to share your story. Uh, and um, really express some of the challenges that all of us are seeing and feeling with our healthcare system. I want to wish you the best for the new year and for your surgery as well. On behalf of myself and the, all our listeners, best of luck to you, and um, uh, hope to see you back in Canada. We can chat a little bit about how the surgery went, if you're okay with that, when you get back. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd love to, love to do that. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, for everybody that's listening, it's time to stop being complacent and start hammering your fists. You know, I could act up and go into a hospital and say, I'm here for my surgery, but you're not on the list. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, the police would get involved in all the rest of it. That's their <laughs> way of handling things. Well, right? we won't go there, but Bruce. Perhaps, <laughs> no, you won't go there. But maybe that's what we need to do. We need to uh, demonstrate and act up write your politicians, tell them that you are not happy with the way things are going, and I have come to my saturation point, get on with it. And that's it. Thank you again for allowing me to, to do this. And yes, for sure, I'd, lo- I'd love to chat with you about this again. Um, during uh, When I come back, uh, I'll contact you and uh, have you uh, t- talk about the surgery and stuff like that. And then the uh, fact that I'm going back again to have this done in November. So uh, then then I'll be able to uh, uh, begin my, uh, or or revive my career as a ballet dancer, right? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Bruce, God bless you. Take care of yourself. Thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.